Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 268 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a photographer living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, who simply goes by Ruben. I came across an article that Ruben wrote regarding a clever way to describe photographs, which I personally found to be a really compelling method through which we can describe our work or other people's work in a way that doesn't incite defensiveness. I was really happy that Ruben agreed to come onto the show to talk about this idea, as well as many other fun topics. Before we get started, I wanted to remind listeners that the Natural Landscape Photography Awards are back. Depending on when you listen to this, entries open on June 1st. We've added more prizes, clarified our categories and rules, added new judges, and increased the overall prize total to over $17,000. We are also eagerly awaiting the printed book from last year after a really bad run of COVID that happened with our printer in Korea. If you want to take part, head over to naturallandscapeawards.com. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Michael Rubin, and I understand you go by just Rubin, is that right? That is right. Um, that's what everyone calls me. I just decided to roll with that. So yes, Ruben is great. I love it. I love it. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's fine. It's nice to meet you finally. Yeah, it's awesome. And I, I love your little Boba Fett uh, back there. Little oh, yeah. He, he watches over me. He's like an angel over my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Do you watch The Mandalorian? You know, I I, uh, I got Disney to, to watch a little bit. But at the end of the day... I. People think I'm going to be a bigger Star Wars fan than I am because uh, of working for George Lucas. And I have a ton of stuff. I've written, you know, obviously I've written books about George Lucas. But uh, no, I, I've decided to keep to the classics. And that's pretty much my my domain, the history. Right yeah. Well, half, half the people who are Star Wars fans are super happy you said that. And the other half are like, boo. But oh, I'm it, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it, honestly, the thing about Star Wars is it's, it's kind of made for the the teenager in us and every generation since I was a teenager, there's been new stuff. And the people who are teenagers when it comes out, hate the stuff that happens later because it wasn't in their formative years. But I like that like every generation's got their own hook into the universe. And that's, that's pretty nice to me. It peaked at empire strikes back, but that's like, I'm an old dude. So that's what you I get. Mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong. Well, awesome, Ruben. So for people who aren't familiar with you and, and your photography, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, gosh, I'm not, what can I say? I've been taking pictures and interested in photography since I was a kid. Um, my family has been in photography and um, I studied with a professional artist as a kid and that kind of became my style and my family have collected uh, fine art photography since the seventies. So I grew up around photography and I really thought I would be a professional photographer. It just seemed like this is all I like. It's what I do. If given opportunity to do anything I want, uh, my parents really urged me to get a normal job. And I mean, the way they put it was not to like, there's the stuff you do that you love and then there's stuff you do for money and for work and to have a career as a photographer, as I'm certain you and your, your uh, audience knows, it's brutally hard. 
Uh, even the greatest photographers in history, most of them had other jobs to kind of support themselves or they, they did yearbook photos or whatever they did. And I ended up in a, a cool sort of tech media career starting in the 80s and just took pictures for the love of it. So in a weird way, after 40 years and, uh, and, and taking tons of pictures, um, my way of approaching photography at some level is kind of more like everybody with a smartphone. Like it's just, I have a camera on me. I take pictures for fun. It's, I, I don't have a commercial investment in this. Uh, and so there, while there are lots of professionals who will uh, advise and teach and have lots to impart to, to beginners and to uh, fans of photography, I feel like my experiences are uniquely sort of aligned with regular people who are just taking pictures. And that's kind of how I've kind of focused myself. So, so I've had a career in tech. I worked at Lucasfilm in the early days, inventing a, a lot of this stuff. And bef before Lucasfilm spun out Pixar and then um, I, I've done other stuff. I, I landed at uh, Netflix at the dawn of its kind of life. It's, I know it's an inauspicious day for Netflix, but but it, it's still amazing compared to where we started in the early 2000s. And then I had a, a, some more of my career at Adobe um, doing, uh, I was the senior innovator at Adobe and kind of working in the development of future things. So I've always been around tech and media and and all that stuff. Uh, and I've always been taking pictures, but I've never been a, a real professional. Like I, it hasn't been the way I've earned a living. Uh, let's just say that. So that's the bias that everything I'm going to say has. Please accept that. <laughs> I love. I actually love that. You know, I, every time I talk to someone who does it full time, you know, they always have these caveats. Like, I know I'm privileged to be able to say this, but I think on the other, on the flip side, where you don't have to rely on on it for income, you also have other privileges that people that do don't have. So I think it's an important distinction to make. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we talk more about what, what I sort of believe about photography, I, I think the, the grain of salt for anybody is like that. Well, that guy's not trying to make money. You know, that guy's just doing it because he loves it. But hopefully some of your audience are also people who just can't not pick up a camera that they see the world through this sort of <laughs> frame and, uh, and I'm with you guys, you know, so. I love it. All right. Well, we're, we're all, we're all allies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so anyway, I, I, have lived in California for, um, after graduating college, I moved to California for Lucasfilm and I've in, in Los Angeles. And I went back and forth between the Bay area and Los Angeles for decades, uh, ultimately settling in the Bay area where I raised a family, um, and then I got divorced at some point and moved into San Francisco proper for the last 10 years, which has been phenomenal. And just in the past year, I decided to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I'm talking to you from Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I currently call home. Yeah, you're only three hours away from me. <laughs> We're like neighbors. I know. Yeah. I was actually <laughs> just drove really close to there two days ago. So it's coming back from White Sands. Oh, oh my God. I love White Sands. Oh, what it's, an unbelievable place. It It's like life-changing to see that, right? It's amazing. Especially like in blue hour, it's like you're floating on clouds. It's, it's really hard to describe. I know. When I was there um, about this time last year, uh, I happened to be there and a storm blew in. And so you've got not only the white sand, but the sky was almost black. Oh, yeah. And it was amazing. Oh, yeah, the contrast. I, I won't go on, but amazing. Yeah, we had yeah. the same. We had the same thing 
on Saturday. It was pretty special. <laughs> you realize you're standing on top of a dune with a camera and like there's nothing between you and the lightning above you. <laughs> you're right. like it's, it's a, this is ill-advised. I remember thinking that as the storm blew in. Like, yeah. I think we're going to be dead. That's what I think is about to happen. Yeah, well, it could possibly go wrong. Standing what on a giant wrong? pile of gypsum and yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's uh, that's me, you know. What uh, what prompted you to, to move to Santa Fe? Well, I guess it was a bunch of things. And I'm a big believer in... Like I've changed my career maybe three times in, in 40, 50 years. I just, I like taking a discipline and then moving into a different discipline. And sometimes it's difficult or painful going into a new industry. Um, and so I've been in a, in, a, in a few different industries and coming to Santa Fe was a, just a big, I just felt like I needed a big shift. I, I wanted to focus all my attention on photography. And I had up to that point, I'd been doing enough with tech and media that San Francisco made sense, but uh, Santa Fe is the number three art town in the country. There's New York and LA and Santa Fe. It's a small town. And I grew up in a small town in North Florida, Gainesville, Florida is where I'm from. And I I thought, wow, if I'm really going to concentrate on making this the the next and possibly the last part of my career, um, Santa Fe might be like a small town devoted to art. And there's galleries. Like I have this rather massive collection of photography. And where do you want to have that? To even have the space for it in San Francisco would be prohibitively expensive. But in Santa Fe, I can have this here with me. Uh, I can have my library. I can shoot here. It's sort of the mid-country, so people can visit from both sides. and, And so those are the kind of the primary factors. It just felt like the right place to be a photographer. And I just started teaching at the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops uh, during COVID, uh, and at the time it was over Zoom, but my intention was to build that into my live workshops. And I just like all signs were pointing to go left at Albuquerque. You know, I just needed to get get into the mountains and have a new a new life here. So, and it's, it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful place. Not oh, that yeah. the Bay Area isn't, but it it's a different kind of beauty. Yeah, we love we love Santa Fe. My wife and I try to go there at least like once a year. We we actually used to, we still live in Colorado Springs. And we would drive all the way to Santa Fe just to go to Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day. Colorado Springs, both Santa Fe and Colorado Springs, there's so, it's a part of the country that has so much unbelievable wild lands, Southern Utah and oh, Southern yeah. Colorado. It's just unbelievable. And I thought I've spent 40 years in the Bay Area. Let's get to know this part of the country. This is a great part of the country too. And so yeah, that's, yeah. that was part of the answer. So well, you I think get that was it. A- that's a good choice. That's a good. Cho- I mean, I, I live in Durango, so it's. Oh, uh, it's so cool. Yeah. yeah, it's. I totally understand what you're saying. Mm. Well, well, I recently uh, actually learned about you through a like a random article that I saw that you wrote for Petapixel, and the title of it was uh, Eight Useful Ways to Describe and Measure Your Photos," and <laughs> I just found the article really refreshing and. Uh, the concepts you discussed there solve a lot of the problems that that we tend to have here in the landscape and nature community in terms of just different arguments we have about describing photos and mm-hmm. like oh that's a composite or whatever and, you know <laughs> these fist fights online and I, I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about uh, these eight useful ways and what they've done for you. Yeah, well, I think t- to kind of back it up, I. 
I have the way that I take pictures. You know, it is just my style. Everybody, every one of us has our, our, our particular sort of style. And, I, and I'm pretty sure mine was generated from growing up around these classic modernist photos from Cartier-Bresson and Ansel Adams and Ed Weston and, and Imogene Cunningham, the whole, the range of the, that group. And I never really resonated with sort of contemporary conceptual photography where someone pours honey on their head and takes picture. Like it just, I, I didn't get it. It didn't matter to me. I wasn't that interested. Yeah. Um, so I had my own way. And then over the past sort of five, six years, at, at first I started talking about my pictures as, uh, I would call them haiku, but I, I didn't mean it in an academic way. I was just being flip. I was just thinking of them as little poems, like little, and unlike conceptual photography, they stood alone. You know, conceptual photography, you need to see all of the series of this thing to realize this person is really probing this idea visually. And I was much more in the sort of the Cartier-Bresson school of like, you just go out with your camera and you shoot, you shoot. And this picture has nothing to do with that picture other than I took it. Um, but when I came up with, started calling things haiku, I started researching haiku more and and I couldn't believe, it was coincidence, but I couldn't believe how much the descriptions of haiku, the judgments of it applied to what I was doing. So if I was teaching a class, instead of just saying, oh, I like this picture and I don't like that picture, which is a pretty like, well, screw you, you know, I don't, you know. Right. What's um, wrong with my picture? <laughs> yeah, I, was going, I, I know the thing that haiku allowed me to say, and it made me feel good was, well, my picture is a haiku, but maybe your picture is a limerick or a sonnet. It's like there are different poetic forms. And just because I'm doing one that has these proscribed things to it, uh, lots of people have different ones. And, and I no longer can need to say, I don't like your picture. I can more accurately say, uh, it's not a haiku So so for these reasons. But as I got deeper and deeper into haiku and then began studying other Zen arts, I started to recognize these these principles in all of these arts that, you know, there were these ideas and there was a certain place in the idea where a Zen a haiku photo might be, but it required a new way of parsing the axes of what our photography was. And, and, and so the eight ways were really sort of four, you should think of them as continuums between extremes. Uh, so one of the extreme, one of the graphs might be, a photograph can be on one end, a, a thing, and then on the other end, a moment, okay? Now, for my photography, there is a point between those two that I'm aiming for. But I'm not saying that, that, that everyone's picture needs to be that. But just the idea of looking at a photo and saying to yourself, is it more object or is it more moment? Because in, in haiku, there's a lot about um, seasonality, about time. In the Zen arts, there's a lot about time. And for me, a camera, one of the great things about a camera is it's this device that deals with time. It's a time machine of, of sorts. Right. And so if I just take a picture of an object, a pen, a chair, whatever it is, it's not really leveraging all the aspects of a camera's ability to freeze time, to show us what, I mean, it may save that moment, but it's not totally doing all the things a camera can do. I really want to embrace what a camera can do. So for me, I want a picture that is somewhere 
closer to the moment than object. Now, obviously, nothing is every is all one or the other. But if it's a little more of a moment, it means that uh, ten seconds later, no, it, it's completely gone. Uh, another photographer standing in the same place a moment later couldn't see what I saw or wouldn't capture what I captured. And I liked that nature of. My picture is unique to my moment, my experience, and not just a picture of a rock on the ground that anybody walking by might take, and it's kind of devoid of its understanding of time. So, so that's one continuum from thing to moment, right? Um, and it becomes useful in my workshops, but even if you don't take a workshop, it's a useful way to think about your picture. And if sometime, if you look at your own picture and you think, oh, I like it, you might later look at your picture and say, it's very much just an object. And I wonder if what I could do to make it more about the moment. It's just a way to grow or, or, or play in your own photography. So that's totally. one, one thing. Totally. So another, another um, attribute of an image, again, the continuum. On one extreme is cryptic. And on the other side is obvious. Okay? Right. Cryptic to obvious. Now, a cryptic picture, we've all seen these things. It's, I don't know, you see a rust on a fence or something, or, or you just take some weird abstraction. And it might be kind of cool looking, but you never really know what you're looking at. It's one of those puzzles, like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm staring at. I don't even know how I should feel. So that's cryptic on one side. And then obvious on the other is, oh, it's a chair. Like, there's a picture of a chair. There's no mystery to it. Uh, there's no question. It's probably right in the middle of the frame, you know. And and some and, and the thing is, like, as far as obvious goes, there's lots of ways something can be obvious. One might be that it's uh, a, a sunset, a beautiful sunset. So I take a picture of that beautiful sunset. There's nothing wrong with a picture of a beautiful sunset, but I might be able to look at that and say, well, it, it's obviously beautiful. Like. Can I push myself to make it not so hitting you over the head with its beauty? Um, you know what I'm saying? It, oh, totally. Be, I mean, like can, one way I like to do that in landscape photography, you know, like when you're shooting a, uh, in a sunset is maybe you don't include any of the sky. Maybe you just right. include the, the glow on the ground or, you know, objects that are get, catching that light. You know what I mean? Or you put your back to the sun and you see what's being illuminated by this gorgeous light, not just sure. the sun going down, right? Yeah. There's, I don't want to proscribe how you deal with it, but it's a self-analysis of, is my picture just obviously beautiful? A, a beautiful body, a beautiful flower, a beautiful mountain with a beautiful sunset. Again, nothing wrong with it, but that's one extreme. And then there's the cryptic where you strat it and I don't even know why I'm looking at it. Well, somewhere in the middle is this point where you're, you don't maybe know what it is and then you realize it quickly or it's, it's like the shadow of something or a part of something. So, so that's another continuum. Those are two more. Then there is about composition and I'm a big you know, proponent of photographic composition. We can talk, we could do a whole show on that, but that continuum goes from rigorously formal you know, so maybe the object is in the middle of the frame and there's nothing around it, or it's a perfectly symmetrical something, or even a perfectly symmetrical something with a little something off, right? All of those are very formal constructions. If you follow the rule of thirds, and we will 
debate that endlessly. Um, it, that's a very formal construction. Something is here, whatever. Okay. Right. Symmetry, whatever. Symmetry, yeah. all that stuff, all those, anything that's like a rule is going to create something that's sort of formal. And I have no problem with formality. It's it's a way of approaching photography. The other extreme is is you know absolutely chaotic. It's just like you weren't even composing it. You took a picture and things are all over, and some things are in front of other things, and things are what. Okay, again, many photographers embrace that nature, and that's a totally cool thing. But for me, um, I I'm trying to hit this point in composition where it's formal, but it doesn't feel stiff. It doesn't feel you know. Uh, too rigorous. So it's, it's naturally formal. It's organically formal. And again, if you look at some of the Zen arts, uh, like Ikebana, which is the Zen art of flower arranging, you know, someone has made this thing or, or bonsai, you know, this has been created, but it doesn't show the hand of the creator. It doesn't feel forced. It's trying to feel naturalistic. And yet, you know, intellectually, this has been constructed. So I personally aim for this kind of place where it's has a kind of formality to it, but it doesn't feel set up or stiff. It still feels natural and a, a little wabi-sabi, a little messed up. So those that's like the, the third pairing. And then the fourth pairing is what I like to think of as authentic to uh, inorganic or fabricated. Okay. And an authentic picture, of course, all photography is inauthentic. Let's just be clear-headed that even Ed Weston pointed out that photography is a willful distortion of, of fact, right? We know that you can point your camera in any direction. You've chosen to show me this one thing. You've chosen to crop it this way. You, you've made a million decisions to affect how I feel about it. But still, there's a kind of authenticity of real things. I didn't set this up. It's just what was going on out there. Um, to fabricated. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. Uh, I mean, fabricated in the sense that I absolutely planned this. I'm a studio photographer. It's a still life. I, I set it up or I'm talking to a model and I'm trying to get them to do something, or I go into Photoshop and I fix things like those are more fabricated because that's not really what really happened. I'm not just capturing a moment in the world. I'm, 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 I'm fixing it I, like an artist would. And so you know, conceptual photographers do stuff that's fabricated all the time. I have not, I don't have a single problem with it. I just think that I like sort of the journalistic integrity of sort of the, the magnum photographers who want you to know they didn't Photoshop that thing, that they saw that thing. That's important. It's not incidental. So when you have a beautiful landscape and there's a, a flock of birds that's flying over it, I want to know that you caught that moment, a magical synchronicity. And that's part of the magic of being a photographer, completely different than going into a dark room or going into Photoshop and saying, I think it could use some, a little more blue here. And I think we should put some birds there. It, it's so easy to do that. And if you're a professional and you're trying to make a great picture that people buy, have at it. But for me, I want it to have a certain kind of authenticity that I'm not talking to my subjects. I'm not setting up scenes. I'm everything I, and I don't crop my photos. I'm just, this is how it presented. Now, of course I went into post-production and fixed things, but to the level that I still feel is meeting my thresholds of authenticity. And it's a personal line. I make things black and white. That's not authentic. That's, but that's, but I allowed myself that I'm not messing with the, the moment. 
I'm just playing around sometimes with the exposures and stuff. And that's the exception I give myself. So those are the eight terms. There are really four, you know, axes to look at your pictures. And I find that it makes it easier to talk about your picture taking and uh, self-identify what it is you like. And then it gives you an opportunity to grow a little bit because you can try pushing yourself to not be so obvious or to, to have a more formal composition. Maybe you're going to, you can work on it. And a crit- critic can look and say, wow, that's a beautiful picture. I think it would be, I, I'd like it better if it was, you moved a little less obvious, like try that, work on that. Right. So no, that I gives love- us words to talk about instead of, uh, Hey, I liked your picture, man. It was really cool. Yeah. Like, that's like, oh, that's, that's, that's digital art. And no, like, no, it's just more fabricated. You know? <laughs> I, I don't know. Did that answer your question? You know, as far as, uh, yeah, because no, I, I love it because it also gives you frameworks through which you can talk about your own work or talk about other people's work in a way that doesn't feel attacking or, you know, has all these loaded terms with it. It's just describing where it sits on a variety of continuum that then allows conversation to occur that's less adversarial. I agree. I agree. And it and as a teacher, it changed everything. It changed everything because there was just no structure before. I think every photography class I'd ever uh, talked about, uh, seen going on, has got a very large technical component. This is what f-stop is. This is a shutter speed. This is how you do stuff with your camera. There's a lot of business stuff, like this is how you get a job, this is how you get in a gallery, this is how you archive your stuff, um, a lot of career work. But the one thing that nobody is really talking about is actual the aesthetics of photography, how to discuss it. You just either like it or you don't. And I, what I see is a lot of Instagram photographers who have millions of followers getting bored, uh, feeling like they've plateaued out, like they just need to keep if they're landscape photographers, just go into weirder, more intense landscapes, but that's it. Like their photography is still sort of the same and they're not pushing the aesthetics of their work. And I felt like this gave people a a way to both grow if they're really good. And if they're just a beginner, a, a way to start thinking about this, you'll find your own voice, you'll find your own way, but like now you can at least discuss that. And I hate I really do hate rule of thirds conversations and golden mean conversations. It's not, I I think it's misguided, even if it can be helpful to people when they're starting out, which I, and I, and I talk about that sometimes, but I I think that it doesn't actually teach you anything about composition. And I think that um, my workshops and, and talking about it in terms of Ikebana and some of these other things at least is a way to actually talk about it without saying it's, it's a rule, like a rule of thirds. It's more about harmonies and weight and, and other stuff that can be taught and not ignored and just say, yeah, you'll figure it out and you'll, you'll use this rule. Then you'll give it up, you know, cause you're cooler than that. Right. I think that that's not a great foundation for, for students and amateurs or, or even pros maybe. And what's interesting as you were describing those four continuum, I found myself, attributing kind of my own value system to each one of them. Like, oh, this is where I want my photos to be on that continuum kind of a thing. That's nice. I think it's kind of cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can look at, I mean, I'm looking over your shoulder at a picture. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous picture, right? And no one would normally have any criticism. But if you wanted to discuss the picture, you would ask yourself, is like, 
it, it's obviously gorgeous. Could you take it down a notch so it's not just writing in all caps, look how freaking gorgeous. I mean, of course, if you're on the top of a mountain, you're going to get that. But it's very hard as a photographer to say, what else can I do? Right. Like, can I, can I be beautiful without being over the top beautiful? And right. No, it's a good point. I mean, that's why I've been spending more time personally photographing more abstract scenes and, you know, sand dunes and deserts and, you know, close-ups of mud patterns and, you know. That White sands is amazing for that, right? Oh, God, I have. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm, I gave I, myself way too much work to do because, of course, I shot like tons of telephoto stuff and it's all focus stacked and, yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I, I will, I will say for, for my own personal photography, I make it a point to shoot like I did when I was on film, which is not to overshoot things. I know I'm, I'm standing at White Sands. I'm not going to be there again for years. You feel like you should take everything you could possibly think of taking, yep. which, you know, in some sense is the right approach, but you're making work for yourself. You've got a million very similar pictures. You pull them into Lightroom or whatever you use. I use Lightroom and I'm pouring through them and it's like, I wish I took half as many, like, uh, it's stupid. It's kind of stupid. I'm making a lot of work for myself. And so I'm really down to, I shoot maybe a hundred photos an hour. Like of, that's my own pace. I don't shoot a ton more than that. So I know that it's not going to take that long to go through them and find, find the best stuff. And I count on, you know, it's like if you're a hunter, I'm not a hunter, but I know that people who do hunt, there's a range of opinions about the process. And some people will go out there with their rifle and some people will go out with a shotgun uh but some people will shoot with a bow and arrow like they consider that more sporting in some oh, yeah. way and you would never go out with a submachine gun like that seems unsporting like that's kind of missing the point if but of course if you need to feed yourself whatever you've got you need to kill the animal and eat it i suppose to survive but for me i'm not trying to survive on my photography so i'm out with a bow and arrow and i manually focus and i manually expose and I take fewer pictures more conscientiously. And it has a rippling effect of not spending all day in, in Lightroom going through yeah. a million pictures, which are subtly different and probably not importantly different, you know? Yeah, I would say my approach is actually pretty similar. I, you know, I think I was there for three days and I think I probably have like, you know, 300 images. I mean, it's not, it's not insane. Wow. That's great discipline because that is an unbelievably beautiful place. Yeah, no, I'm very, um, I'm pretty meticulous in the field, but I'm more like, I'm using like the World War One like single shot rifle, using uh -huh. your analogy. Oh. So, where, you know, I, I'm not using a bow and arrow, like I'm not shooting film or like a slingshot, uh -huh. but I'm also not just spraying and praying either. So, yeah. Interesting. So again, these are, there's no right or wrong for these things, but I think as photographers, we find the part of the hobby, the part of it that we enjoy and getting the right shot with out of a few is fun for me. Oh, yeah. But for a lot of people, it's all the end justifies the means. If they'll shoot 10,000 pictures to get that one because they do that extra work to get it. And that's a different, that's like their, that's what's cool for them. Yeah. There's no wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 So anyway, that's, um, and, and I will say that with the rules, with the, with these sort of concepts, I, there are sort of photographic exceptions. I think that portrait photography is its own class of stuff. It it has authenticity, even though you're talking to the subject. Um, it can be a lot more formal. You can tell someone to stand somewhere, move them around. It's it's a different. I judge it differently. 
you know, then I do lots of other stuff. Even though the terms apply, again, it's a reminder they're not bad, but I do find that that portrait photography is different and landscape photography seems to occupy its own space because for the most part, you're shooting things, not moments, but still there are moments in things. And like, look again, the picture on the wall behind you. Yes, it's a thing like a mountain range on a, but there's so much moment to that image. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, that particular photograph represents, you know, like 20 hours of, Climbing and you know yeah. sleeping, not sleeping at thirteen thousand feet, and then capturing a moment that will never be replicated again. So right, right. So you've embraced that idea of moment, but you've done it in something that's it's harder to do it in. It's harder to do it in. Um, I find that the the thingness over the moment and the and really you know embracing that time element. And also the uh, obvious versus cryptic. Like sometimes it's just super obvious. It's just right there. It's all, it's all on the page. And for me, when I do landscapes, I have tried to push farther away from the obvious. Like I take the obvious. Don't get me wrong. I can't sure. not shoot it. But I'm not done. When, when I get that picture that's amazing, I'm now sort of thinking, okay, now the light's starting to fade. It's different. I'm having a different experience here. What can I do it in? Can I talk more about not my wonder of this space, maybe, but a little more of my fear of being up on the top of a mountain or, or communicate sure. something else and, and play in that. So, yeah, no, anyway. I think, you know, we, um, last year we started a new photography competition that kind of embraces more natural editing and we have specific rules and raw file checks and all this stuff. And the images that tended to do really well are the ones that kind of went more towards the cryptic side of things that, you know, like the photo of the year was a, it was actually photographed on film and it was a, actually a picture of a um, piece of ice on a black sand beach that Ooh. looked like a mountain. And then some of the sand, or there was a rock embedded in the sand that looked, it was in the shape of a moon. So uh-huh. it looked like a mountain and a moon amongst <laughs> the stars, but it was a, piece of ice and sand that sounds that sounds really cool yeah Yeah, it was awesome and so you know those are the kind of images that you know just kind of stop you in your tracks you're like okay what am i looking at here right i love that and and you know for me i you know i grew up around a lot of ansel adams work and not just the sort of the classic famous ones but you know he shot a lot of stuff over the years and um you know the the things that uh that my dad collected that he was interested in were almost the most abstract of his landscapes. If you look at frozen ice and cliffs, um, if you've seen that, that picture, it's, he went with a a class. A lot of people have photographed almost in the same spot, but almost every other photograph I've seen of the same area feels too documentary. Like uh, here's a rock and cliffs and, and Adams is like, you stare at it and you're not quite sure what you got. I mean, you, you recognize it or, or his 1947 dunes. He has one of the dunes. It's a vertical and the sand dunes are there. And it feels like a charcoal drawing. It's just a straight shot, but he's found the abstraction in the nature. And I like that. I, yeah. you know, it really drew me to it almost more than the ones that were just majestic. You Absolutely. Know, like the Tetons and the, and the Snake River or something, right? Which is pretty straight. Yeah, I mean, I like them both, but I find 
the you know obvious uh, I guess yeah obvious is the word uh it's you know it doesn't hold your attention as for quite as long and especially if you've been looking at a lot of work over and over again you know mm-hmm. it's like oh I've seen that type of shot before and but yeah that, the cryptic is yeah. definitely for me like I, I'm trying to push my own work more in that direction when I can I think that the cryptic, one of the things that pushing a little more cryptic from the obvious does is um, there's so much photography now, uh, like music, that if you don't get it instantly, you're done. It's on Instagram or whatever. They're looking even on a website, maybe. They look for a second and either it works, boom, love it, uh, or, or I don't get it or I don't like it. And what it doesn't leave room for is the idea that the obvious thing that you loved when you first saw it gets boring very quickly. Now, on Instagram, it doesn't matter. But in photography that uh, that I'm trying to concentrate on, I want something that I can hang on the wall or look at year after year. And is it going to get boring? Is, am I still going to feel like excited about it? And that is a high bar. And often you don't even know until you've stared at it for a long time. But I find that the ones that I have been able to look at for 40 years and, and, and I put them in front of me and I still go, wow, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's, it's usually because it's a little bit more surprising. It's a little more cryptic or it has more of the haiku nature, which you know we could talk about another time. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to learn more about how you use this uh, photographic haiku um, to, to teach photography, like what does that process look like? Well, I guess first, once you understand these continuum between thing and moment and obvious and cryptic, so now you have the language, uh, haiku have a very structured form, you know, and the structure of real haiku uh, is not the 575, right? like that's what people think of when you did it in grade school. But the real structure of great haiku is that it's got a, a, you know, it's got a cutting word. It's got a thing in it that breaks this very short poem into two parts, a main part and a secondary part. And it's not just that there's two parts. It's not just that one's big and then one's small. It's that when you see the big one, you have a certain feeling. And then a moment later, you see the small one and it changes how you feel. That is a very high bar. But what I noticed is that when I go through the classic works of photography or my own works that I've been doing for, for many years, the best stuff is the stuff that meets that criterion. Now, I didn't do it on purpose. I just kind of, I liked the shot or it made me laugh. Uh, but what I realized is that, you know, you see, think about Ansel Adams' picture of the winter sunrise in Lone Pine. I'm using landscape ideas since you have a landscape audience. It's a very famous picture. But what you'll notice is when you walk up to the print is that it's got this majestic mountain range, okay? Like almost like yours behind you. Just unbelievable show-stopping mountain range. It's brightly lit. Your eye goes to the bright area. And then a moment later, you notice this tiny little horse down in the pasture at the bottom. Now, you're not going to see that horse at first because it's so overwhelming that this big thing is happening. But it, it's kind of delightful. It, it's a little shift from a picture of this massive thing. Now that it has a kind of sweetness to it that it didn't have. Or George Tice, a an older but contemporary photographer, has this famous picture of a gas station called Pettit's Mobile Station. And it's nighttime and you see this gas station lit at night. It's sort of like the mountain range in Adam's thing. You've got this lit area, car, 
at the mobile station. And then all of a sudden you notice in the darkness that's not lit is a giant water tower looming over the scene. It is that same feeling of you first see the bright thing and then you see this other thing. And it can't be too cryptic. It can't be that you have to look at it for 20 minutes to see the other thing. And it can't be too obvious because then you'd see it all in one shot. So it's just the right level of, I see this, oh, and I see that. And, and so that, that's a haiku structural thing that you can do in your photography and it's hard to do. Yeah. And there's two ways to do it. You can do it with these two elements like the, the atoms or it could be like the Ed Weston called Pepper 30 where you're looking at something and you're not exactly sure what you see. For Pepper 30, it's a bell pepper but it looks very sexy. And you look at it and if you weren't really sure, you might think it was a nude and you might be embarrassed to look even closer. And then you realize that's a bell pepper and it just took, it takes a second. It's just a one, two, but you have a kind of a relief. Oh, I can look at that. That's not dirty. That's a bell pepper, <laughs> right? Okay. So even if you just have one thing in frame, if you, if it's at the right place between cryptic and obvious, right at the fulcrum, You'll not get it, then you'll get it. And that does the same sort of haiku duality thing of a big thing and a little thing. So so structurally, that's one of the keys to a haiku. Another thing that's a key to haiku is that you do, you're doing a lot with a little, okay? You only have these tiny few syllables, right? It's the same as ikebana. Uh, it's the same as bonsai. The, the removing of detail, the removing of visual clutter, the removing of all this stuff without being too formal, without being too stiff, but simplifying the image down to kind of its kernel, like a haiku, like a, like a Nikibana. And that is, uses your photographic skills. How do you simplify? Not just framing, but F-stop and depth of field, right? Shutter speed, lighting. All of these things are ways you can simplify an image so that someone's eye isn't just scattered all over the place going wherever, so as a photographer, I see an image and now I'm going to use my skills to see if I can quickly simplify it without screwing it up, right? And if it's a real world thing, you've only got a few moments to do it because everything's kind of in flux. Right. So right. now you're composing on the fly, you're simplifying on the fly. It's easier to practice with a still life, but those are the photographic skills. So I think you can get a sense of the ideas from haiku and from these other Zen arts apply really nicely to teaching photography to beginners or helping people sort of advance the way they think about what they're doing. Yeah. And if I'm, if I'm channeling some of our listeners, I'm asking a few questions about this because I feel like what you just said makes total sense and it sounds like a great way to approach it, but I'm wondering like, what's the practicality in terms of, okay, I'm, in the field, I'm taking a hike through a forest. How do I, what am I looking for that kind of occupies that space of haiku? Well, I don't think you look for it exactly. I mean, I know as photographers, we're trained to notice things that other people miss, particularly light, but often lots of stuff, you know, you just, you know, um, and so when I'm walking around, when I notice something, let's say I'm, I'm standing on the edge of a lake and there's a mountain over there and it's like, oh my God, look at the way the light is hitting the trees. So I pull out the camera. I, I like to say that I get my first few shots is to get the cliche out of the way. Take the obvious shot. Don't miss it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but now that I've got it, I'm thinking about, okay, 
my brain is doing stuff that the camera's not doing. My brain is filtering things out. So let me look around this frame a lot more. Oh, you know what? There's branches sticking up here. I wonder if I can just move a little bit farther over here that kind of gets those out of the way. Let me squat down a little bit and that changes this. I'm going to maybe use the tree. I'm going to get behind the tree to block out this other. You know, I'm going to play around with my skills to try to simplify the scene, to, to intensify what you're focusing on in this image. Not just here's the image, but your eye needs to have a place to rest for a moment. And, and so these are, the, these are what it takes to be a good photographer is to be able to do this quickly. And, um, well, it's harder with nature, like when it's, it, it's so harder dynamic. with nature, totally harder with nature, partly because things don't move a lot. So you have a, a fair amount of time, but you also don't have sometimes a, a central focus. It's a more of a broad scene. I don't know where you're looking. It's a, it's Ansel Adams dune. I don't know. There's, it's just a bunch of cool lines. Uh, you're not looking at anything, but if there could be a rock or something to land you to ground you maybe that will help to think about and they tell people in landscape maybe think about a foreground object of some kind or you know or something in the sky somewhere you, you got to play I, I can't dictate it and it's a lifelong practice but that is what you're doing you're seeing even in your picture here you've simplified it maybe lots of stuff was going on that you consciously or unconsciously cut out Maybe there was a building on a mountain over to the left. And so you kind of tilted to the right or power lines that you're shooting underneath. Like, I don't know, but you are simplifying naturally. That's your, your instinct as a photographer, but it can be hard. Street photography, it's the worst. Like you really got to work to simplify all the noise and the, the cacophony. And I mean that visually, uh, maybe landscapes make it a little bit easier because everything, it doesn't have the same kind of visual clutter in some cases. I don't know. Like I said, landscape is its own special case, as you, uh, you and your, your audience certainly know. It certainly knows. Sure, sure. No, that that makes sense. I just, uh, you know, I, I just know what you said is going to resonate with a lot of people, and they're going to want some practical, you know, steps to take in order to like get into that zone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it's easier. Like I find it easier just to look at someone's pictures. Like I, I don't know that I could direct you per se. Uh, like go out and do X. But I think when you go out and do X and show me what you did, it's easy to point and say, okay, there's a lot of visual noise here. Like what could you do to simplify? Could you shorten your depth of field? Like try darkening all this to make all that disappear into the dark. Let's, let's do it in post-production. Ansel Adams did it in post, right? His most beautiful vertical aspens, like those aspens in the front center are just aspens. If he just printed that, You'd have a bunch of trees there. It would be a boring picture. But he burned and dodged the background around those trees. So you really see the center ones. The back ones kind of disappear. He's used post-production to simplify. Oh, for sure. Well, and I think also um, once you start studying and looking for those types of – that duality that you're describing, when you're in the field, it seems to me that you would be more kind of unconsciously aware of when it strikes you when you see it. Mm Mm-hmm. You do, obviously, if you do it for long enough. I mean, look at Cartier-Bresson. I mean, this guy, his pictures are elegantly simple. Or, or if you want a modern modern photographer, there's Sebastio Salgado, okay? Salgado's, these are new, Salgado's a news photographer. He's out at, in Kuwait where things are blowing up, and yet his photos are composed and simple and elegant, 
but they're still journalistic. It doesn't change anything else. And I think these principles belie the content. We're not talking about any specific thing. You can apply it to studio work. You can apply them to news gathering or landscapes or whatever. You still need an answer in your head of that. I, I like a more formal composition. I need a simpler thing or, you know, whatever. My style is to be very busy, but that's at least a conscious decision that that's how, what, what I like in, in my pictures. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, what other uh, ways do the Zen arts help teach valuable lessons about photography? Um, well, uh, I think beyond this idea of simplification, which you know, we've talked about, or embracing time, make, seeing how you can, can hold time in there, I, I think that uh, this, the idea of, of having a juxtaposition of some sort in your, in your pictures, so it's not just a single energy beat, but there's this ba-bum. There's some sort of rhythm. It makes things a lot more dynamic and uh, interesting to look at. I, the term that's been used historically is that whether a picture has a story, that's what people like to talk about. But I think that it's hard for you to understand what it means to have a story. But I do understand having a couple focal points in my image and that they have a relationship to each other, you know, and <laughs> yeah. the relationship is the story, you know. So I, I think that uh, those are, are important elements um, I think maybe maybe the last one, and it's not the most important, but like I think that printing is critical, and it's a real it's a real marker because it's easy it's easy to shoot with our digital cameras to fix them in post and to share them on Instagram, but they're incredibly ephemeral. And um, while it's nice and frictionless to get it out to millions of people and all that sort of thing. I'm a big believer in making a physical object out of that image. It's more than just a hard copy. It is the version, the execution of my idea in its perfect form. So I don't worry that you're seeing it on, uh, on different kinds of screens, that it's being cropped in different kinds of ways. Some pictures really need to be large. Some need to be small. I get to make those decisions. I lock it in and I'm saying, this is how I want this image to be experienced. If I forego that, I'm abdicating part of my work as a photographer and it feels lousy. I did so much work to make this picture and you're going to see it cropped on a crappy screen. On a two-inch screen. <laughs> oh, it, it just makes me crazy. So uh, there's lots of reasons to print, both Zen reasons, photographic reasons. Um, but that, that's one of those things that I, don't, I certainly don't do that in the workshops these days. But I, I encourage anyone who's interested in photography of the importance of printing their stuff for tons of reasons. And the, one of the reasons is to just live with your picture. So you see it all the time because you will decide in short order that you're getting bored with that shot. And you don't always know it. But it's a high bar because I, I think we've all done it where you've got a picture, you love it, you go to your printer and you get out this $5 sheet of paper and you know how much ink is going to go on this thing. And it might take a few to get it right. And you load it up and you're standing there and you think, no, I don't think it's good enough. I don't <laughs> think I want to waste the money. You know, and you take it off and you find a different picture. And that is a non-trivial threshold that I, I think it's important for photographers to push through. If you don't print, you never really know that you love it, that it's going to last, and that you've contributed to sort of the history of photography, if that's what you care about. Well, and it also shows you really quickly what you don't like about your image or what needs to be improved. I mean, absolutely. you know, I have absolutely. an image over here that I've re-edited like 50 times 
<laughs> and the first iteration of it, I unfortunately I printed it pretty big, like thirty by forty-five, and but that was important because the large size actually showed me a lot of flaws that mm-hmm. needed to be fixed in it. And so my latest, and then I printed it again here, and I there's some other flaws that kind of creeped in. So you know, it's an iterative process that um, is a learning experience, not only in capture but post capture, and you know, I think. To your point, the printing process just is another instrument to help you grow as a photographer and as an artist. Yeah. And you get to decide. I mean, some pictures shouldn't be wall size. It doesn't mean they're not good. It doesn't mean they're not good. Right. You know, uh, there's a picture by one of my favorite photographers and it's like small. It's about this big. Uh, it's like two by three and it's adorable. And he's put it on like silver paper and it, so you see it and you have a feeling just because it's so adorable, Right. It's not just the picture. It's that whole experience. If you blew that up, I think it wouldn't be as good a picture. And it's not because it doesn't have the resolution or it's not good enough to be big. You're making a statement with your print. So uh, it's, I, I think that just, I've said enough there, but there's lots of stuff that we go over in these workshops to show what, if you're interested in, in this kind of process it puts constraints on it. It doesn't say this is the only way to shoot, but as you try to make a haiku, you're exercising those muscles about simplifying and framing and all that stuff. Then you can go off and do your own thing. That's why it's such a nice beginner play. It's a great place for beginners to start. And it's a great place for people who are very advanced who feel like there's nowhere to go, but get more expensive equipment or buy a drone or climb a higher mountain. Guilty I'm of all those things. Can- <laughs> but you can you can grow your practice without even leaving your house, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is so funny with the things that we do and spend money on that we think is going to make our photography better. But really, it's about changing how we practice photography. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> well, tell us about the podcast that you co-host called Everyday Photography Every Day. <laughs> Everyday photography, every day. Well, it started a bunch of years ago. I, I really wanted to do a podcast to talk about some of these ideas, but I'd been interviewing uh, professional photographers to do it with me, and everybody was too good. You know, it was a very high level conversation. And yeah. one day, a friend of mine who is, is a creative executive at, at an agency, she was like, "Well, why don't you make? Why don't I do it with you? Because I don't know anything about photography. You know a bunch. I have an iPhone. If you could." teach me, help me, or if we could talk to people, we we're going to approach them from a different point of view. And it was such a good thing. Suzanne, um, her name is Suzanne Fritzhans, and, and we've done this show for three, almost four years. And she's just, she is great. It's like being on NPR. She just knows how to talk to people. And she's, uh, she speaks from the voice of just someone who doesn't really care about photography, but they wish they took better pictures. So we've, we interview artists, we interview, we, sometimes we just talk and it's, it's really for people who are not professionals trying to get jobs or, or, or there's no talk of gear. We could care less about gear. The, the truth is I'm a big proponent of whatever you've got is good enough. You're like every camera has its own constraints. Having more resolution is not necessarily what you want. I think all digital cameras in the past 10 years are so good that, you know, it doesn't really matter. For me, what I want is a camera that has all the controls on the outside. I don't, I want it lightweight and I want to have ISO, shutter speed, f-stop and focus all right there. So I don't have to go into the computer part of the the camera ever. So so you're a Fuji shooter. 
So I'm a Fuji shooter. <laughs> but I didn't know it. I was a film shooter until I became a Fuji shooter. And I like that it, like, it's just a workhorse and I don't care. It's not that expensive. It's a, I'm shooting the X-T2 here. Awesome. Um, yeah. And, and I look at the X-T4 and like they've made it better in a lot of ways and it sure. adds video and better resolution. And at the end of the day, I don't, I don't need any of that. I take perfectly fine pictures for what I'm doing. I print, I they print beautifully. It's easy and lightweight. Yeah, no, it's, it's great advice. Like, this... So anyway, it's a, fu- it's a fun podcast. We, we uh, haven't been doing it a little uh, since this year very much just because Suzanne's been super busy, but we've got a backlog of people to talk to, mostly artists, but uh, all kinds of people involved with just helping amateur photographers take pictures for the love of it. You know, yeah, that's turns out that's what amateur technically means is for the love of it. It is. That's right. It's a little. It sounds a little negative, like oh, you're an amateur, but I, I, which is like a novice, which actually sort of sounds like you're amateurish, and I don't mean that. I mean very. I would call. I call myself a professional amateur. I love that. I have a career as an amateur, and I don't want to lose that. I like having beginner's mind. I like not being motivated by commercial, uh, by a client. You know, every time I've worked for a client, I feel like it's a job, which is great if you're a professional photographer, don't get me wrong. But for me, where it's not my job, I don't want to make, turn it into work. I want to do it because it's fun. So that I, I really want to embrace people who do this because, you know, because you can't not, you can't not pick up your camera. It's so fun, you know? Agreed. Well, I'm curious after all that, I would really like, love to know what role editing uh, and processing plays in your style of image making. I know you talked a little bit about black and white, and I know you sounds like you're a fan of some little bit of dodging and burning, but I'm curious kind of how do you use editing to kind of accentuate some of these things you're trying to do with your photos? I think mostly the dodging and burning allows me to de-emphasize some parts of the frame and and not others. I don't remove objects. Uh, like I feel like that would be a failure of my composition if something was in frame that I didn't want. And because I'm not goal-oriented, um, I mean, the picture taking is a practice. It's like a, a religious practice. It's an enso. That's the calligraphy of drawing those circles. And you just approach it from that point of view. So if something's screwed up my picture because it's in frame, then that's just an imperfect picture. I don't go and fix it by in Photoshop or even in Lightroom. But taking it into black and white is part of my process to help because I it is an abstraction. It is a creation. The, the question when I go into post-production is that I don't want to lose its authenticity. Can I, can I fix it to intensify these feelings of simple and elegant and sort of poetic without it being heavy handed and without it being for, you know, forced and it's hard to do. And, you know, you, you try it, but yes, I, I make things black and white. I burn and dodge a little bit. And I use the full frame. I never crop because I, I want to compose in frame. That's my goal. And I don't remove anything, you know, from the frame. So it, it still is that kind of moment that happened that I captured. And it sounds like you're Accepting also... You're also yeah. not adding things that weren't there. Yeah, correct. I mean, in my sort of historical work in photography, I, I merged lots of negatives to make cool things. And that's a different, it's not a haiku. That's a certain kind of artistic composition yeah. that it's I a, love. It's a limerick. 
It's a limerick and it's cool. I love limericks. They're dirty. They're fun. So I, I'm all for it, but I don't go, ba- I don't go back and forth. I don't have some pictures where I put a bird in the sky and other pictures where I caught the bird in the sky. It would, it would ruin my sort of sense of self-worth, my own sense of credibility where you don't know when you look at my picture, whether I made it or faked it, you know, faked it quotes around it. So I try to do everything that's as straight as I can, but I'm okay with post-production. Like you need it. Things need it. Totally. No, I'm same way. Yeah. I, I, it sounds like we're pretty similar. I'm a, actually a little bit more liberal in terms of like, I will crop and, you know, I'll definitely accentuate certain colors if I feel like they, they're like part of the story that needs to be told. But I'm certainly not adding anything that wasn't there unless, and if I do on a rare occasion, I disclose it. Um, just for, like you said, authenticity purposes. It's hard. It's hard because, you know, metadata gets stripped off. Like you can write in your caption, I added the bird, but it only takes one share that that's gone. And I know. people will be like, oh my God, the polar bear and the Aurora. Oh man, that was amazing. And you're like, well, it didn't really do that when I was there. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No, but I, you know, if someone's going to the original source, like on my website or something, I want them to have the full story. Yeah. Whatever it yeah. is. Um, Again, like everything, it's just where you find your comfort, but at least you can talk about it. And to try to take pictures where you don't crop, that, again, that's sort of a high bar. Not everyone can do it. And you don't want to like, I'm not going to toss that picture out because I, I misdid it. I'll just crop it a little bit and it solves my problem. But to me inside, like I feel like I didn't quite make it. Like it's fine. It's a great picture. I'll move on. But, you know, that's not... That's not what I was aiming for, you know? Yeah, no, it's interesting because it sounds like we're both driven by kind of this intrinsic desire to satisfy this unsatiable kind of thing of like taking the high road and, you know, pushing ourselves to be better at all, better than our previous versions of ourselves. And, it, you know, the bar is always going up and up and up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. And it is I, like, I like that photography is a personal practice. Yes. You know, and it's fun. It's, it's like being an athlete and like, I know nothing about being an athlete, but I imagine it's like being an athlete and, and just trying to beat your record, trying to push yourself. You would never think of cheating at that. You're cheating yourself as they say. And, and so that's why the, that's kind of the last reason why it's so much like these other Zen arts, because it's just a, a practice. I'm not trying to achieve some Buddhist idea of, of Zazen, of in, enlightenment. Um, I'm just trying to take better pictures, you know, but those lessons from those arts really is, I find oddly instructive, really helpful. So, yeah. And that's what my workshops are. I, I, I've been teaching this. I mean, I've been talking about it for a long time, but when COVID hit, I started teaching this workshop through the Santa Fe photographic workshops over zoom. And it was like the first time I'd really organized it. And the courses have been very popular and they sell out every time we offer them. And we're doing a one in person this summer. And it's, it's mostly talking about this and then people go out and shoot. And then it's a lot of critique and I can be really hard in those critiques because it's not personal. It's never, I don't like it or I do like it. It's right. how, is, how yeah. is it on these grids and right. how do you feel about that? What are you aiming for? Yeah, exactly. So, like, are you, Okay, so tell me, are you aiming for it to be a picture of a thing that's obvious <laughs> and formal and authentic? Um, because if so, <laughs> you've nailed it. But if you're <laughs> aiming for it to be more of a moment that's a little bit 
less obvious. You know, what I mean, like, I think it just gives you that platform to really crit- critique someone based on what they want it to be. Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite pictures by that I've done, I, I've really in the moment they're beautifully simple and elegant, but. I can look at it and feel like it's just too simple. I, I know I didn't set it up, but you'd almost imagine looking at this that I hired a model to stand out there and I got some reflector lights. It's like, it's too perfect. And that isn't good either. Like, I know it's like, God, I really just got it. I just came, got up in the morning and I shot that picture. But if it feels inauthentic, you've missed, even if it was authentic. Right. <laughs> yeah. What you got to do is you got to add a little bit of a uh, grain in the, in the film, <laughs> <laughs> like, like just make it look like a shot, you know, like on bad film or something. Well, we can talk about Wabi Sabi anytime. It's like, it's perfection and imperfection. And there's a line somewhere you feel when it's too perfect versus naturally organically perfect. And that's something that, again, people can work on. Well, awesome, Ruben. This has been so much fun. I, this is- Definitely exceeded all my expectations. You're super fun to talk to. Oh, cool. Thanks. This is this is neat. I don't usually talk to landscape photographers, but I do have information online. I have a, a website of called neomodern.com, which is the workshops. There's always information about the workshops at Santa Fe or, or other information about the Zen arts and, and the curriculum. And I have my own pictures. I'm, I'm Ruben, R-U-B-I-N. And so my pictures are by... Ruben, not B-U-Y, but B-Y, pictures by me. And that's a good place if people want to see all kinds of different executions of these ideas in landscapes, architecture, you know, family, journalism, nudes, stu- you know, everything. You can apply the ideas in various ways and it's, it's pretty good. And I'm, of course, on Instagram as DroidMaker on Instagram. So I love it. Well, we'll, we'll put links to all that in the show notes uh, for sure. Oh, cool. Who... Who would you recommend our listeners learn more about in terms of inspiration or someone's work that you think is worth studying? Wow. Uh, it's a, there's a bunch of people that come to mind. I, I always, as, a, as an overarching thing, it's like there's been like five guys who have been, have been the assistants of Ansel Adams, right. John Sexton and Perkle Jones and all these guys. And I can send you a list of them. Yeah, it's They're like all John was on the show. John Sexton? Yeah, he's been on the show. Oh, he's awesome. He's, yeah. a, he's a great photographer. Um, yep. All those guys are great printers. Ted Orland. And they have different styles. Um, so uh, those are good for, for people in general who are interested in landscapes. For me, uh, of course, uh, I was raised sort of in the tutelage of this guy, Jerry Yulesman, who pioneered multiple exposure darkroom work. He died this week and it's been a, a tough week. He died on Monday and um, he just, you know, he has, was such a delightful guy. He had such a great sense of humor and his pictures are haunting and beautiful and weird. And this was years before Photoshop. Like he did not do these in a computer. He did these by taking just fun elements and then being poetic in a dark room. And while it's not the kind of photography I do today, I learned a lot about photographic composition and those juxtapositions, even though they were done purposefully, you know, they're fabricated, obviously, yet it is instructive about thinking about what it means to put a lion by a tree or put a, to juxtapose different feelings and to darken this and make the tree look creepy and next to these people, all that stuff. So have a tree coming out of a, have a tree coming out of a house. 
Absolutely. Or yeah. what has he got? He's got a he's got a castle coming out of a tree. I post pictures of the little hamburger tree where he's got a tree coming out of a hamburger. <laughs> right. And it's the picture that's the little one that I like that's on the wall. It's tiny, but it's to see the a little silver print of the tree coming out of a hamburger with the clouds. It's weird and delightful. Anyway, I, I miss the guy. He, he really informed a lot about my creativity. And if you don't know his work, it can be fun to, to take a look at and just realize it's all darkroom work. It's not, it's not uh, Photoshop. Yeah, I know he was a big inspiration to uh, a lot of people who have been on the show before, including William Neal and um, some others that I know. It was like the day he passed, a lot of people that I'm friends with were pretty upset by it. Mm. So it's a tough, it's a tough, a tough thing, but he's, you know, uh, I'm from Gainesville, Florida and he's a Gainesville guy. And I got to say in Gainesville, there's only a few things that are really our claims to fame, Gatorade, Tom Petty. And for me growing up with Jerry Yulesman was just the, like the, the greatest influence. So hey, those are three awesome things. Not bad for a Southern town. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Well, awesome, man. Like I said, this has been a lot of fun and we'll put links to everything in the show notes. And um, I just really enjoyed it. Great. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, anytime you want to like hang out, it'd be great. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, thanks to Ruben for joining me for this very fun conversation this week on the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Zen arts and how they can apply to your photography, I highly encourage you to reach out to Ruben directly on his website and check out his workshop offerings. You can find those in the show notes. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can listen to a bonus recording all about wabi-sabi, the traditional Japanese worldview centered on the acceptance of transience and imperfection. I think it will help your photography just a little bit. If you want to listen, you can access it over on Patreon. Next up on the podcast, we sit down with Theo Bosboom, a Dutch photographer who has quickly become one of my personal favorite artists in the nature photography scene. He is also a judge for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards this year, which just reopened. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.